G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Vision Christian Radio is all about connecting faith to life. From inspiring stories about the struggles we all face, to helping you understand the issues going on in the world, to clear and understandable Bible teaching, all peppered with great Christian music, the latest news, and even a few laughs along the way. You're about to experience just a small part of what we do. For the full experience, tune into a Vision Christian Radio FM or AM station near you. Listen online at visionradio.org.au or download our free app. We're going to be talking about the Paris Climate Conference that starts next week. It goes for two weeks. Now, the governments of more than 190 nations are going to be gathering in Paris to discuss a possible new global agreement on climate change aimed at reducing global greenhouse gas emissions and thus avoiding uh, what uh, many argue is the threat of dangerous climate change. So current commitments on greenhouse gas emissions run to 2020. So at Paris, governments are expected to produce an agreement on what happens for the decade after that. Now, of course, the scientists have been warning that if greenhouse gas emissions continue to rise, then global warming becomes catastrophic and irreversible. So uh, that threshold estimated as a temperature rise of 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels and on current emissions trajectories uh, heading for a rise of 5%. And so even those small changes, it's argued, will bring big differences for the earth. Well, there's a lot of dimensions on this whole debate about climate change, but the nations of the world are gathering in Paris and they're going to be talking about that new agreement. Well, let's get our heads around some of these things today and welcoming two guests to talk through the issue. Eleni Arapoglu is the policy researcher for the party called the Australian Christians and Jenny Stokes, a familiar name to all of us listening in, from Salt Shakers, who's encouraging people to write or email the Prime Minister and the Environment Minister and the Foreign Minister and say, don't sign that treaty. Let's uh, welcome our two guests. Uh, Eleni Arapoglu, welcome along to 2020. Well, thank you. And Jenny Stokes from Salt Shakers, welcome back to 2020. Always good to be with you, Neil. Okay, well, this is a a very complicated sort of a uh, debate that's going on. And most people, in my estimation, don't necessarily have their heads around it. Uh, What's happening next week, the Paris Conference, uh, sometimes called the COP21 Conference or the Conference of Parties, uh, where the uh, the goal is uh, a United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, following on from what we would understand was the Kyoto Protocol uh, that ends in 2020, and so all about finding a new place for nations of the earth to agree on how to address climate change. Uh, let me come to you first, Jenny Stokes uh, from Salt Shakers. Uh, Jenny, just how important is it uh, for us to be focusing on this Paris conference? Well, I think the fact that all of these nations are actually going to be in Paris and actually looking at uh, coming to some agreement uh, should sort of at least ring, <laughs> ring some sort of... Uh, 
you know, interest in us to say, well, what is actually happening? What's what's the conference about? Um, you know, what's the background of some of this? And and certainly, what's happened is that. Uh, you know, it's called COP21 because it's a conference of parties that signed up to uh, what was the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which was an international treaty set up in, 19, in the 1990s, in 1992. And at that time, uh, they basically set up to say, well, you know, greenhouse emissions, particularly carbon dioxide, were causing uh, uh, global warming. And we've, we see the difference of change from global warming to, you know, you know, in common language uh, now now called climate change, where actually I heard a you know scientist actually saying, well, in some places it's going to be warmer, some places it's going to be cooler, but you know they've sort of it's not now that the earth is totally warming everywhere, and so uh, there's been a lot of uh, dispute among that. So some of the scientists that have actually agreed that this is happening, but there are a lot of people out there, you know, credible scientists like uh, Dr. David Evans and and others, who are saying, look, the science is science isn't clear on it. And so what's behind it all is, is perhaps flawed in its, you know, just in its basis of it. Eleni Arapoglu, what are your thoughts on just how important this conference is? I mean, I guess it's important depending on which side of the debate you're standing on. Well, that's right. I mean, it's, it's from where a lot of people are seeing it is the hypocrisy of, you know, thousands and thousands of politicians from 195 nations, I think, going to emit a whole stack of uh, carbon emissions going onto their private jets to tell us that we shouldn't emit that many emissions. And, I mean, it's always uh, a little bit alarming when you get so many people um, under one roof telling them, telling the whole world that they're the solution to mankind's problems. And now they can even, you know, um, keep the, the rate of temperature of the climate to two degrees, um, May, oh, a lot of us see it as the height of human arrogance to be able to make such a claim. <laughs> well, Jenny Stokes, let me ask you about uh, the issues here because uh, whether you are on one side of the climate change debate or the other, that in some ways is a little, uh, I don't want to use the word lightly, but irrelevant to the ideas that there might be all sorts of ramifications from signing a global agreement because here you've got issues of national sovereignty at risk. And, uh, and I know you're encouraging people to get in touch with the Prime Minister and the Environment Minister and the, uh, and the Foreign Minister saying don't sign that treaty because uh, there are some national sovereignty issues here. What is the biggest risk in your mind? Well, I think to be uh, signing up to any sort of treaty, and we've been concerned over the years that many treaties that United Nations have actually put forward. We started with the United Nations uh, Declaration of Human Rights back in 1948, and that was always seen to be sort of reasonable, you know, the guaranteeing the right to marry, the right to found a family, the right for freedom of expression. But the problem is that over the years, extra treaties have been written. So this is before we got to the climate change scenario, but we've had you know, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which takes two or three phrases out of that original document and extends and expands them out. And what we've seen over the years is that many of the minority groups, the homosexual lobby and others, are asking for recognition in those United Nations treaties. So what might have been seen as a reasonable framework to try and war to get people working together back in 1948 has been changed so much over the years that these days things that the United Nations do 
um, can often be of concern to the average citizen. And more and more we see almost this global government sort of thing that, that they want to have that control. And certainly Christopher Monckton has um, put forward the documents showing that, you know, really global government is the key to what's happening here. And certainly back at Copenhagen a few years ago, when they had one of the other, ma- the last major conference of parties and all, everybody getting together, there was that concern that if a treaty is signed up to, you're actually be giving some of your national sovereignty away to the United Nations. And we don't retain that for our country. And certainly at that time, and I'm sure that happens now, in order to get some of these smaller countries to agree what's involved is huge amounts of finance given to the poorer countries, the developing countries, um, you know, so that they'll agree to it. And, you know, really what happens is that, that you know, if we imagined, imagined a world without um, fossil fuels, uh, the use of, of coal and other things to get electricity, to drive our cars, petroleum, those sorts of things, that's what's enabled the West to get ahead financially. And if you actually remove that from the smaller countries, saying, well, you can manage on renewable energy, on wind power, that really removes the ability for some of those countries to actually get ahead and be established economically. And so Australia would actually be beholden to quite significant financial costs in helping a fund to help those poorer countries. You mentioned uh, the issue of world government, and I guess uh, for some people they'll think they'll think that well, that's a solution to uh, the issues, and particularly on this uh, issue of environment. Uh, there's another step deeper in the idea of uh, the fact that there are conspiracy theories that go around all of this. And if I were just uh, broaching on this, and I'm not sure how well we'd be able to tackle it because I didn't invite a, a particular uh, theological uh, guest on to be able to tackle all these sorts of issues. But uh, for Christians who've been around for a while, over many decades, there's been the development of ideas that global government is part of an end times scenario that biblical prophecy certainly does point to. If you take that reading of the scriptures, if you go to books like Daniel and and uh, Matthew chapter 24 and, uh, and uh, into the book of Revelation, uh, let me ask you uh, first, uh, Jenny Stokes, uh, when it comes to all of the different depths and dimensions of what's happening in Paris next week, is there any credence to the idea that that there might there might be a, a biblical prophecy being fulfilled in what uh, in what we could see coming about. It's interesting when it comes to end time prophecies, and there are so many people in Christian circles who have differing views on that. So, as a ministry, we've uh, we've always talked plainly about yes, Jesus is returning. We don't know the time of that. So, there are some people who would be more conscious of you know things that are happening and monitoring that to see that you know is Jesus returning now. So, we look at what's happening in the political world at this time, perhaps rather than an in-time scenario. But one of the things about national sovereignty, and I think that's where we go, that that nations have their own sovereignty. And that's set up clearly in Romans 13. So in Romans 13, it talks about that God has put people in nations. And the role of the nation, the role of the national government, if you like, is to restrain evil and promote good. And often we see that governments themselves have gone well beyond that in trying to, you know, create moral policy and change morality and so on, as we see here in Australia. But the key thing is there, that I think, that, that the Bible clearly talks about being in nations. And when you've got sort of these overarching structures that might have been seen to be a good thing, but especially when they come with treaties and powers that are taken where governments have to submit to those 
of those you know, international agreements. We've seen that in the EU, the European Union. And some of the things that are happening there, people are actually starting to rebel and say, actually, we don't want to give our sovereignty of our nation to the European Union. And so the United Nations is just another example of that. So we see it as a, the national sovereignty. We see it clearly in Scripture as you know, the practical ongoing structure of nations to give away that sovereignty by saying, well, we'll do what the United Nations decides. And not only the United Nations, what all the other 195 countries tell us that we all agree on. And the problem here is that you've got China and India, huge manufacturers that are relying on coal um, and other things. They're emitting far more carbon. Australia's emitting about 1.3% of the carbon dioxide emissions, so very low emitter. Our business, our economy, all of those things are actually affected by you know, some of these international agreements that people sign up to. So they're all concerned, I think, here in Australia for our own nation. Uh, an important point you're making there, Jenny Stokes, that there are many, many more dimensions other than looking at end-time scenarios for Christians to be able to argue uh, that a new agreement between nations that removes sovereignty uh, ought to be resisted. Uh, Eleni Arapoglu, do you have any uh, thoughts, uh, given that uh, you're a senior policy researcher for the Australian Christians, I guess you're focused more on the politics too rather than some of those theological implications. Well, absolutely, and I don't think it's just a Christian concern that's, that what is happening now is alarming to a lot of people because if you trace it back, this is not sort of a new... Uh, it's got a new spin on an old sort of uh, socialist, redistributionist, uh, mentality that began in 1975 with the Lima Declara- Declaration, which was also by the UN, and they used words like redistribution, which is clearly a socialist uh, term, um, and it was to sort of shift from developing countries, their industry and resources, to developing countries, um, and basically it was almost like penalising uh, developed countries for doing so well and bringing themselves out of poverty and increasing their living standards. And further to the Lima Declaration, it's sort of the same mentality, which basically says that there's got to be a redistribution, shifting of everything. Um, And this can only happen on a global scale. But if you look at how they've sort of went about this, and Jenny mentioned the Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro in 1992, out of that came Agenda 21. And that's not conspiratorial because you can download it from um, the UN site itself. But when you look at the kind of terms that they use, it really does fit a one-world governance, which is total mass control of everyone. So they look to implement, and they put it under a very cosy term, sustainable development. But it really is a worldwide inventory of um, all land, water, minerals, animals, construction, energy, the whole gamut of things. And they've thought through that to basically micromanage it by implementing it on a local council level, and most councils here in Melbourne are signed up to it. It's called ICLE, and it's, you know, everything from the control of land to um, basically overriding private decision-making on your private property, and the government can forcibly take it for whatever purposes it sees fit as part of its sustainable development rhetoric. So that's, that's quite scary because we know that freedom and free markets depend on private property and uh, no coercion, that's the whole part of freedom and free markets that made us flourish, that coercion was taken out of this. But this is forced coercion to the will of unelected bureaucrats of the UN and the EU. And, I mean, it's no longer something that's 
uh, just sort of like something that you have to really dig to find the truth. It's, it's pretty much in plain sight because Peter Sutherland, who helped create the EU, is now head of the UN Borders and Migration. And he's openly said, so you can Google that, that the goal is to eliminate national sovereignty and Europe itself. So just create this homogenous group of people that doesn't really talk to its distinctive environmental and economic landscape or even its culture. So we all become just basically subjected to the will of these people, and that that can't be good. Well, the plot thickens, doesn't it, when we talk about conspiracy theories? And I'll get your thoughts, Jenny Stokes, on the idea that left-leaning ideologies may have felt as though they've failed or that other mechanisms haven't worked for them and all of a sudden there's a way to latch on to an environmental agenda that gives an opportunity to implement left-leaning agendas, but for the whole world. Well, that's certainly the case, and uh, and we've done quite a bit of work too, looking at Agenda 21 and uh, and the Rio Summit back in the 80s, and that led to the development in 1992 of this United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which is what we're looking at now. But prior to that was the Rio Summit, where a lot of nations signed up to that, and actually organised and developed by a man called Morris Strong, who, if you look at our original article that we wrote on the global warming issue back in 2007, we actually talked about how that was set up, the conferences that he'd been involved in. And uh, it's interesting that after I wrote that article, I came across a quote from a man called Alexander King, and we talk about, you know, these aren't conspiracy theories anymore. They actually wrote in his book in in 1991, he wrote a book, I think it was called The Coming Global Catastrophe. But in there it said, um, you know, as an organisation from the Club of Rome, it's something I looked at in at university and learnt about in the 1970s. Um, but it was like we looked around for a cause that would unite people. And we basically, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but it said we looked around for a cause that would unite people and we settled on famine and global warming and we thought that would fix the bill. So this is what, you know, these, these aren't conspiracies. These are like them saying in their own words that we look for a cause that would unite people. And, uh, and certainly that's what this climate change, the global warming scenario, has actually done. It's united the countries of the world. It's united people um, trying to unite the scientists. But there are some who say, no, we actually don't agree that the science is there. And certainly there's a big dispute about whether the carbon, whether the, you know, if there is warming in temperature, whether that follows an increase in carbon dioxide emissions or whether it is after it. And there's certainly been a, a debate about that. And, uh, and some of the, the things about the actual science is certainly not, um, not settled. If you look at some of the science groups, there are, there are a number of groups that actually dispute it. But it's become, well, the scientists say so. And uh, if the scientists say so, then it must be right. But what we've also seen is a lot of government funding of all sorts of things, everything from research projects to, to other things to... But if you're actually doing things in the name of global warming or it's now become climate change, um, then you get funding for it. It's all part of the, you know, the scenario that uh, climate change, global warming funding is available for groups who are doing research. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. We are talking about the Paris Climate Conference called the COP21 Conference. That stands for Conference of Parties. 
the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Of course, you know the Kyoto Protocol ends in 2020 and so uh, world leaders are looking for a global treaty. And that's what they're discussing in Paris next week, or at least the United Nations looking for a global treaty. Our two guests this hour, Eleni Arapoglu, who's policy researcher for the Australian Christians, and Jenny Stokes from Salt Shakers, also with us. Uh, We are taking calls. Uh, Let's take a call. Uh, We'll hear from Diane in New South Wales. Hello, Diane. Welcome along to 2020. Hello, this is the second time I've called, so it's very good. I listen to your show all the time, as I said. Um, I feel they should go look back, look back at what's worked well in the past, like in the 60s and 70s with the recycling. They should focus more on, re- on the recycling and um, re- replanting trees instead of clearing land, replanting trees and sustainable energies and all that sort of thing. So instead of um, moving forward and tearing up the land and then going, oops, we've used too much. Yep, good thoughts, Diane. Thank you so much for your input today here on 2020. one 316 if you'd like to join our conversation. A thought from Graham in Tasmania. Hello, Graham. What are, you, what are your thoughts? Uh, well, all things are sort of coming to a head as far as I'm concerned. It, uh, the Europeans and uh, is coming into its own power. I believe that uh, the European Union will be a very powerful force in our time. And the, the, uh, the future of uh, the world is, is going to be uh, conducted from them. And we will have to do what they want us to do. The climate, climate change itself, uh, the climate certainly is changing. Man is uh, polluting the earth. And, uh, but there's different theories. We've had climate change through the ages, so the scientists tell us long before man is supposed to be on the face of the earth, but it, it certainly we are changing the world. Anyway, I'll leave it at that. Graham, thank you so much for your input today here on 2020. one 316 if you'd like to be part of our conversation. Jenny Stokes, is this something that people ought to be fearful about? Because if you engage in conspiracy theories... And, uh, and of course, and we talked uh, a little earlier about the idea of prophecies and things like that. Is this something that uh, people ought to be fearful over? Well, I think that, um, that fear is probably not, is not a word that I'd use in either, on either side. And I think, um, you know, those who, who go along with the idea that, you know, the earth is warming and certainly the scientific evidence that I've seen seems to show that it hasn't been warming for the last, and I think they're actually saying 17 years. 19. 19 years now. I did read 18 yesterday. So it's sort of, it's going along and we haven't had an actual amount of warming. So I think sometimes it, the, the people who are promoting this, they use a fear element to say, well, it's, it's, it's all happening and the earth is warming. We must do something now or, you know, it'll heat up. Well, you know, I, I've heard agriculturalists say, well, actually a couple of degrees warmer would be really good for our vegetable growing because, um, you know, they actually need the CO2 for, 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 for growth. And so, you know, you look at the other side and you think, you know, from a, from a Christian perspective, and certainly when I wrote that first article back in 2007, which is on our website, I sort of said, well, you know, the Bible tells us that for as long as the earth remains, there'll be summer and winter, springtime and harvest. Um, there'll be all of those things, and God actually is in control. And I think for a Christian to actually know that God is in charge of the earth, he's actually sustaining the earth um, on an ongoing basis, 
um, that we shouldn't be fearful about some of those things. I think we need to be discerning, we need to be aware of um, what's actually happening and particularly the political things that are happening and who's actually behind some of these things. And I think in the idea of conspiracy things, you know, years ago when we didn't have access to the internet, we didn't have all that understanding and knowledge, then, you know, conspiracy theories were sort of floating around. These days, as you've said, we can actually see things. We can actually find out the information on the internet. We don't have to be fearful. We don't have to be making things up. But I think we do have to be discerning and wise. And um, and also to trust in the fact that, that God is actually sustaining the earth and uh, it's he that actually does that. So for a Christian, we're the ones that shouldn't be fearful. Well, I guess there's fear-mongering that can happen on all sides of the debate. Uh, but certainly uh, those who are uh, arguing the science is in and climate change is here and uh, there is a certainly a level of fear-mongering that goes on there. Let me take you to back to May this year when former Prime Minister Tony Abbott's business advisor, Morris Newman, uh, wrote a column and expressed some doubts about science and about the politics that were behind climate change. And he indicated that climate change is a hoax. And uh, he was saying that the United Nations... Uh, actually is looking to end democracy and impose authoritarian rule. And uh, he had some very strong things to say about the whole debate being hijacked by what he called green gesture politics. Uh, Let me ask you, Eleni Arapoglu from Australian Christians, uh, do you think that his advice, which became very public, uh, has much credence to it? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, it's all there right in front of us in plain view, um, and in terms of whether we should be fearful, it is, as, as it's showing, quite a rational fear. It shouldn't be something that paralyzes us, but really awakens us to what, you know, there's a, there's a, a loud now, um, I suppose, what would be seen as once as out in the fringes, but there are a lot of people and organizations. You know, you've got the Heartland Institute, you've got prominent PhD people like Professor Linsden and Timothy Ball and um, a lot of others like David Lappy that are basically coming out and saying, you know, there's a lot on the other side that needs to be examined about how authoritarian um, this has become. And the recent example that comes to mind is Philippe Verdier. He was the French um, uh, weather uh, forecaster or weather, weather reader or whatever he was in France, and he published a book that challenged the IPCC and all the climate change rhetoric and he was fired. Um, And it's ironic because his book basically touches on the fact that you can't challenge it without being shut down and that's exactly what he was saying, that he had a contrary view and they shut him down completely. So Morris Newman is right on point. I mean, we had Christine Milne when she was about saying that people should be um, tried for uh, climate... um, crimes i mean that's just absolutely absurd so you have this um i don't know this new high moral ground that they're taking they're even calling it criminal so to have a contrary view um it's not even open for debate which is really really surprising and lord monckton um going back to abbott he was saying that there were two people that were really left uh, in terms of conservative politics which was abbott and Stephen Harper of Canada that was standing in the way of this, you know, massive glo- global um, onslaught um, against humanity, really, and the poorer countries, and they were standing in the way. And he predicted 
that both of those would, uh, prime ministers would fall um, before the Paris Treaty. And it seems pretty prophetic. Um, I don't know what his um, personal beliefs are, but it was quite prophetic that both, both of those Conservative prime ministers recently lost their elections and the ones that have replaced them have, you know, pretty much just jumped on the whole bandwagon really enthusiastically. So, you know, I, I think it's all there to be seen and to be weighed up by people to make their own sort of um, deliberations and what they think. But it seems pretty compelling. Jenny Stokes from Salt Shakers, given what we are talking about and uh, when we discuss Morris Newman, he was advising Tony Abbott, uh, former chairman of the ABC and the Australian Securities Exchange, certainly someone with uh, some credentials to be talking about these things, calling it all a warmest hoax. Uh, when we talk about Malcolm Turnbull, obviously there's a big difference there in the way that uh, both Abbott and Turnbull think about these things. Uh, but how significant is it that, uh, that those things have happened, this change has taken place, and now uh, we are potentially likely to be signing up to this treaty? Well, I think it is, is significant, the fact that these climate talks are going, the fact that the Prime Minister is actually going to Paris to head the delegate or to be with the delegation, and certainly the first week, uh, Greg Hunt will be there with the delegation leading it, and the second week, Julie Bishop is taking over and she'll be there. And, of course, it's the second week where uh, decisions are made and there's, you know, some sort of proposal is put forward and, you know, will they all vote on it? And I did read this week that the UN was trying to make sure this time and it didn't happen at the previous conference, that basically the arrangements are made in advance. So they'll go there this time knowing what the answers will be, knowing what the proposed treaty is likely to be. So they're trying to get uh, agreement beforehand. And, of course, we need to remember, too, when it comes to Malcolm Turnbull, that in 2009, when Tony Abbott took over the leadership of the Liberal Party from Malcolm Turnbull, the key issue was on the position uh, relating to Labor's um, emissions trading policy. And, of course, we know from that time that Malcolm Turnbull was supportive of, you know, these global warming climate change scenarios. And so to have him come back, that's really why why Tony Abbott won the leadership, was really on a dispute about that. So for him to come back now as Prime Minister, we know that although in order to get the approval of the Nationals, he had to agree to two things. One was to keep the idea of the same-sex marriage policy the same, not to have a conscience vote and to take it to a plebiscite, and also to keep to the coalition position on climate change, which for Australia means that they've removed the carbon tax and they have a direct, direct action policy. But they have increased the amount of you know, projected uh, reduction in emissions that they're planning to have. And of course, once they get to the UN, what does that actually mean You know, when it comes to a global treaty uh, what will that include and will they sign it? And, of course, with Kyoto, uh, we need to remember as well that in terms of some of the coalition governments, the Kyoto Protocol was established in 1997. It was actually finally actually implemented in 2005, but the Howard government refused to sign it. They said, we are not going to sign away our national sovereignty to an international treaty like this that will affect our economy and a range of other things. And so they didn't do it. And yet when the Labor government was elected, Kevin Rudd's first official act in government was to sign the Kyoto Protocol as part of this treaty. So we can see the difference in politics. The, the problem that we have now is that the way politics is in the Liberal Party with Malcolm Turnbull as the leader, we've gone far more towards the centre. As I heard one commentator saying now, well, 
um, we've seen that Bill Shorten's popularity has gone down to 15% as preferred Prime Minister. And as people say, well, you've got a Liberal, uh, liberal leader who's really sometimes more like the Labor leader, and he's certainly very much in the centre. So we actually have a very different focus with our government now with Malcolm Turnbull in charge. And I think that's particularly evident with his personal views relating to global warming and climate change. And that's going to be significant in the next couple of weeks. We are taking calls. Let's hear from Phil in Mackay in Queensland. Hello, Phil. Welcome along to 2020. How are you, Neil? Good, Phil. What are your thoughts? Um, Yeah, I was just interested in your discussion about people getting quite fearful for um, losing national sovereignty and things like this. I've got a bit of a different perspective, I guess. It's more of a a sense of fascination. Um, I think probably the last time we were close to this situation, you know, God mixed up the languages and scattered people across uh, across the globe. I'm sort of more curious as to what he's going to do this time. It might be interesting to see what things happen as this unfolds. And, yeah. uh, but uh, an interesting perspective. I, I just tend to think that in, in a lot of ways it, it's the height of human arrogance to think that, uh, you know, that, that we're so, um, so advanced on, on God's own position that we can control the weather. <laughs> mm, yep. Well, thank and, you so much, uh, I'm, Phil. I'm uh, not really quite convinced that he'll tolerate that. Mm. Phil, appreciate your comment today. Phil from Mackay, thanks for your call. Let's take a call from Robin in Mount Morgan. Hello, Robin. Welcome along to 2020. Yes, hi. Um, I'm interested in what that guy said because um, I was going to speak along the same lines. Um, I really think that Christians need to pray for the truth to be revealed because um, it's the same old, same old. Um, you know, all of the old um, so-called scientific um, beliefs of evolution. The Earth was flat. Remember, the, the Earth used to be flat, and uh, it's always Christians that prove these wrong. Like Christopher Columbus apparently was a Christian and proved that the Earth is not flat, and it's the same old story. But but. The reason why I think it's a spiritual issue, just like that um, Phil said, is that, um, you know, many scientists who even see that, um, you know, that, that the actual experiments and their truth does not back up their claims, they will even still try to hide the truth. So it's really an issue of... Um, because, and uh, the other thing is, I was going to say, um, I do, um, I've followed a lot of these so-called conspiracies, and they're not just a lot of fables and and they seem far-fetched but if you really investigate them there's a heck of a lot of truth and it all comes back to these masonic and occultic um, organizations that get together and 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 really satan or lucifer and they even call him lucifer lucifer is their god he's behind it and um like professor walter weiss he's no fool chuck missler tom horn a lot of these guys they speak on these issues and they have all the facts to back it up in and especially um professor walter he's got a lot on this total onslaught a lot of dvds and um, I don't agree with everything, like mainly about his biblical perspective about some things, but he goes right back into these Masonic and occultic organizations and they again and again and again, they latch hold of these things and they say, we've got to make this happen because we've got to bring in this one world government. And it all comes back to that. I mean, right. I'm just simplifying it. but they Good all thoughts there, up. Robin. I'll have, to, uh, I'll have to cut you short a little there, but uh, very, very good thoughts. And uh, there are a lot of uh, different organizations 
there are conspiracy theories and uh, for people who've been around for a while, you've seen these things come and uh, they do seem to have more credibility today when you start to see some things unfolding the way that we do see them uh, on the face of the earth at the moment and uh, what might be happening in Paris next week. Uh, Running short of time now and uh, just spending this last few minutes, uh, Jenny Stokes, let me come to you because you're asking people to take some action. Uh, if they'd like to uh, to be in touch with the Prime Minister and, and with the Environment Minister and the Foreign Minister, what do you want people to say? Well, what we've suggested to people, like, is that if you're concerned about uh, the, these international treaties, knowing that Kyoto wasn't signed originally and only signed once uh, uh, Kevin Rudd got into power, um, knowing that it, it does come with um, commitments to finance or to pay for... Um, you know, funding uh, smaller countries, poorer countries to try and give them renewable energy, you know, when we really know that's not the solution. But if we're concerned about the removal of national sovereignty to to a United Nations body, then we believe that it's important that we don't sign this particular treaty. And and particularly, as from our perspective, is that we don't believe that the evidence is there that the Earth is warming, and we certainly see it's not. And in fact, in the 1970s, when this first started, um, We've got a, an article from, I think, from Newsweek, and it actually was, um, you know, the world is cooling and the world changes in that sort of temperature. And it actually is far more dangerous when the world starts to cool. So, But the important thing is that if you want to write to them on our front page of our website, I did a briefing paper yesterday with some of the background of what COP21 is all about, where it came from, about the United Nations treaties. We've got the email and contact emails for the Prime Minister, for Greg Hunt and for Julie Bishop. If you'd like to write them a short note um, asking them to protect our national sovereignty and please don't sign a, a climate treaty at, COP, uh, at, um, at COP21 in the yep. next two weeks at COP21. And you can add whatever other information you like to that, of course. But that's the key thing. Then the email addresses are right there on the front of our website. And Eleni Arapoglu, uh, researcher for the Australian Christians. Uh, I don't know whether Australian Christians, because as a conservative political party, as a Christian voice, as uh, one party that's more likely to benefit because of your uh, policy standings in the lead up to the next federal election, and I guess there'll be candidates all around the country. Uh, what are you encouraging people to do? Well, basically, I mean, the whole process of democracy is is that citizens have a social contract with their representative, representative electives to, to do what's in their national interest. That's the whole point of having nations and nation states. And to basically undermine that in such a huge way by making treaties with other nations that have very, you know, different issues that they have to combat in their landscape is undermining this whole process. And that's what they should be saying to their representatives, that this is what we need to stand for. Melanie, I'm going to have to cut you short there, but uh, really appreciate your insights today. Eleni Arapoglu, who's a policy researcher for Australian Christians, and Jenny Stokes from Salt Shakers, a regular guest on 2020. Jenny, always love your insights. Thanks so much for being with us today, both ladies. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.